You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello and welcome to Vernacular Podcast. This is episode five of season four, and we have a lot lined up for you today. First, we're going to talk to the author of a forthcoming book about adoption and how we should think about adoption. And then we're going to talk to the Sype family, Nathan and Sadie, who have joined us before, but they're going to share with us this time about a very harrowing experience that they recently survived, and they're going to share with us their tips on car safety. So if you put two and two together, you know this is about a car accident, but it's a very uh, scary story, and it is amazing that, that they survived, so stick around to hear that in our second segment. But before we do that, I am going to give one of our listeners slash contributors a lightning round. Hey, Elena. Hey. We're really How's excited to give you a lightning round. <laughs> Me too. All right. Hopefully I, uh, hopefully I pass muster. Yes, yes. Well, it is very competitive. It's so. pass-fail. Right. <laughs> but it is multiple choice, A and B, for every answer. And we did try to tailor the questions to you. Past listeners will remember that you have been on the podcast as a guest That's and right. a contributor. So if they know anything about you, they will know that these questions are perfect for you. All right. All right, here we go. First question, a la Bon Appetit, butter or olive oil? Butter. Latte or cappuccino? Uh, latte. Chicago hot dog or Chicago deep dish pizza? Deep dish pizza. Ooh. That's a good nice. answer. Yes. Yeah. Spinach or kale? Spinach. No. Oh, gosh. No, 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 no. <laughs> All right. I guess you failed that oh, question. I so far, Zach. <laughs> uh, you're three for four. <laughs> All right, keep going. Let's see. All right, C.S. Lewis or Dietrich Bonhoeffer? C.S. Lewis. That's a good one. Yeah. Trump or yeah. Hillary? No way. Neither. <laughs> uh, third party voter appealing to Zach's blog post. We're only we're only letting you get away with that because we let Brittany get away with that in yeah, our last lightning round. Yeah, Zach I know. <laughs> may or may not have written a post all about that as you just mentioned. So. <laughs> worth reading you should go read it <laughs> <laughs> all right mumford or the beatles oh i mean gut reaction beatles beatles nice you're nice. taking a little bit too long on these answers elena just <laughs> sorry sorry <laughs> just gotta establish that mumford without the beatles so we'll say beatles it's mm, called a lightning good. round not the slow rolling thunder round <laughs> hey not i'm fair I'm, you guys gotta keep going too. Then come on. Let's okay. <laughs> Acoustic guitar or electric guitar? Um, electric. Six string or twelve string? Six string. Good answer. Cubs or socks? Socks. Terrible answer. <laughs> the American League is the worst. <laughs> and last question. Drum roll, please. Thailand or the United Kingdom? Oh man. Um. <laughs> Uh, Thailand. Nice. Just because of food. Although you've got great food in the UK too, but yeah. But the great food in the UK is not the British food. <laughs> right, it's right. The... It's, it's transported right, exactly. from other countries. Right. It's the imported so food. So maybe I should have said Thailand or India. <laughs> sure, yeah. Well, All right, no. <laughs> those are good answers. Thanks so much for playing with us. Okay, I'm just going to uh, carry on the motif of that last one though. If we were going to adjust it to say Bangkok or London, what would be your answer? Ooh. Wait, if you were going to what? If we were going to say Bangkok or London, what would be your answer? Um, I would have to say Bangkok. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'd say Bangkok. 
Well, I mean, I can't really London speak is, to that. London I've is been awesome, but there's Bangkok is such a unique place. But I it's ve- it's I mean it's so unique in and it's so foreign, right? I mean, for an American living in London yeah. would be so easy. So if someone said to you, you can live in one of two places for the rest of your life, London or Bangkok, where would you go? Well, London would be easier for sure. For sure. But um, but yeah, Bangkok is. I mean, it depends. I suppose Bangkok is a lot. I mean, it would feel more like an adventure because London would feel pretty a lot more comfortable. But yeah. Fair enough. Bangkok so your answer is <laughs> Bangkok. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> well, Alina, thanks so much for playing our lighting round. We hope you enjoyed it, and we'll look forward to having you on the show again soon. Thanks, guys. Have fun. All right, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. We're joined now by Dr. Gilbert Mylander, who is the Senior Research Professor in the Department of Theology at Valparaiso University. Uh, He's also spent time on the President's Council for Bioethics several years ago and uh, has written several books, uh, most notably, at least for our purposes here, the forthcoming title from Notre Dame Press, Not by Nature, But by Grace, Forming Families Through Adoption. Dr. Mylander, welcome to the show. Thank you. We're very excited to have you. Um, just to start off, we wanted to know what made you want to write this book about adoption? Oh, I think it's probably a number of reasons. I mean, it's, it is in some ways a, a long-term interest of mine, even though I've never really written that much about it uh, before. Uh, we Years ago, when we lived in Ohio, we did uh, foster care for about a decade. So we had some experience uh, with uh, the whole uh, children's service system and children in need of adoption and so forth. So uh, it's a it's an interest that's been there for quite a long time. Uh, and when you do that, you see children who need a family uh, as a place in which they can belong. So so to some degree, it was simply a, a kind of a long term interest that grew out of uh, something that our family had uh, had done. Beyond that, I, there are, I suppose more. Um, kind of theoretical reasons. The title of the book is not by nature, but by grace. Um, uh, and I wanted to, and the first chapter contrasts nature and history. And, and I wanted to think through the claims that nature makes on us uh, for Christians. After all, if we say nature, that really means creation. Um, the, the, I wanted to think through those claims and also their limits, you know, what the limits of those natural claims are. So that was a sort of a theoretical issue that interested me. And then a, a somewhat more uh, precise, focused uh, theoretical question was a, a sense that I'd gradually been developing uh, that some um, arguments that uh, some folks, some Christian folks, uh, make against certain forms of assisted reproduction and against same-sex unions were actually undermining the legitimacy of adoption. Um, and on the one hand, I want to join them in uh, in rejecting uh, certain forms of assisted reproduction and same-sex unions, but I didn't want to make the arguments in a way that would seem to undercut the significance and the importance of adoption. So I wanted to think that through, and so the last couple chapters of the book uh, come around to that. Um, But uh, uh, I I guess those are the reasons, sort of a long-time personal interest, and then a couple theoretical sorts of uh, interests. Well, if we can jump off on this nature versus history distinction. Now, in your book, you talk about this 
Um, and uh, you've, you've provided us an advanced manuscript, so thank you for that. We've had a chance to look through it, and uh, we're very impressed by it. But uh, you, you make a, a lot of this distinction between nature and history, uh, between nature and grace. And uh, one of the key lines that I noticed was, was when you said adopt, adoption is a work not of nature but of grace. Can you explain that? Um, the, uh, the natural tie, the biological tie, is, of course, an obvious one and what you might call the sort of standard way of forming a family. Um, <clears throat> it's not the only way. Um, you can form a family through what you might call a shared history over time, and that's essentially what, uh, what adoption does. Um, and that, uh, that does not depend on any blood tie or kin relation. And I connect it with the language of grace, which is specifically theological language, of course, because that way of forming families, excuse me, I'm about to cough here, that that way of forming families ought to be uh, significant and valued, at least for Christians, because, in fact, that is the way the family of God is formed. Nobody becomes a member of the church or the body of Christ uh, by nature. You're not born into it. Um, uh, Just because your parents uh, were... uh, church members doesn't mean you're born into the church. Um, so it's it's by grace. And that's that's actually a central theme of the New Testament. There aren't, uh, there aren't a lot of passages uh, that use the term, but there are several very important and significant passages in the letters of St. Paul that use a, a Greek term, huiathesia, uh, which is usually translated adoption as sons or something like that. And it's a, it's a central metaphor that... Um, the New Testament uses for explaining how one becomes a member of uh, the family of God. So uh, in that sense, um, uh, Christians in particular, at least, ought to have a special interest in uh, this way of forming families. Now, as you mentioned, the uh, grace theme of adoption is very prominent in New Testament Christian literature. And in your book, you also distinguish between uh, or just, I should say distinguish the Christian understanding of adoption from, for example, Jewish or Islamic understanding of adoption or the allowance of uh, uh, those legal frameworks for adoption. Is this something, the, the, the grace distinction that you're talking about in, the, in your book, is this something that has relevance for a, a non-Christian audience as well, or is this really a understanding that is unique to Christians? I don't think it's unique. You can find... Um, things that are somewhat analogous, for instance, in uh, in some Jewish thought, um, I I discuss in some at some length, for instance, a, a well-known essay by by Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik that, uh, in certain respects, uh, develops some uh, some concepts sort of parallel or analogous to what uh, Christians think about it. Um, how far to press this? I don't know. I mean, I would, uh, I would hope that uh, non-Christians can follow the argument in the book and can appreciate it. Um, but the, the, the question of who a book is for is always a little puzzling. I think um, that's what publishers always want to know: is who is this book for? And it's a hard question to answer. Um, I, I think that non-Christians would find in the book some uh, worthwhile food for thought. The book certainly gives evidence that I've found food for thought in uh, various thinkers who are not themselves uh, writing as Christians. And it's always uh, a useful exercise to try to understand better why 
why someone might think the way he does, um, so that uh, for those who aren't Christians, it's useful to understand why Christians think as they do, and for Christians, it's useful to understand why others think uh, as they do. And, you know, in a kind of a larger sense, I think we always owe our fellow citizens some account of why we think what we what we do. So, um uh, I, I'm, uh, you know, my my general view is anyone can read the book with profit. Uh, certain aspects of the argument may appeal more to Christians than uh, than to others, but uh, maybe not. I don't know. I'm I'm I'd be happy to wait and see on that question. In your book, you refer to parenting kind of in a in generally speaking, parenting as a covenantal task. And I was wondering if you could explain that. What does that mean? And why is it important to think of parenting as a covenantal task when we're talking about adoption? Well, covenant's a biblical word, of course. I mean, this is not the only place that one can use the word, but the, the roots of the notion of covenant go uh, very deep into the history of uh, Israel. And I think the point in using covenantal language is that a covenant, uh, at least in that uh, in that strongest sense, a covenant is not just an agreement or a contract. I mean, we do use the term that way sometimes. You buy a condominium and there may be covenants connected with it or something, but, um, uh, but it's more than an agreement or a contract. A covenant cuts more deeply into our identity, shapes more who we actually are. Uh, and so when we covenant together, we're shaping the future that we will share. Um, uh, and being a parent is covenantal, I think, in the sense that it involves that kind of long-term commitment to be a certain kind of person, a father or a mother, uh, to this child. So that it, it is not just a matter of biological relation, though, of course, it is that for parents who've procreated in, in the natural way, but whether um, uh, whether one is a parent through adoption or one is a parent through uh, natural procreation, um, all parents of, of children have to understand what they're doing in this covenantal sense if they want to really take the task uh, fully and be committed to it as a kind of identity-forming and future-shaping uh, shaping relationship. So it's in that sense that I think the covenant language carries some meaning that's a little stronger than what we mean just by agreement or contract or that sort of thing, as I say. It, it, it cuts deeper into who we are. Now, in Chapter 3, which is one of my favorite chapters, you go through a series of questions and answers about adoption. And one of those that caught my eye was the question about whether or not adoption should be considered as a last resort only for infertile couples or whether uh, a fertile couple should also pursue adoption in addition to having biological children. What's your take on that? That's a complicated uh, uh, question. I, I, th I think it's a sort of question to which, you, in answering, you can't say only one thing. So um, I I say a couple things. I mean, the first thing I think to say is that, no, I don't think that we should uh, consider adoption only as a last resort for uh, married couples who discover that, alas, they are infertile. Um, I mean, it obviously is a, a possibility for them, but I don't think we should think that those are the only people for whom adoption is a uh, worthwhile and suitable way to, uh, to become parents. If a couple that is fertile decides for a variety of reasons to forego natural procreation because they see it as their calling to provide a family as a place of belonging for children who have no home, 
uh, or for children uh, with uh, with special needs, uh, then that that seems to me to be uh, to be fine, um, uh, and more than fine. I mean, praiseworthy. So uh, so the families that they form through adoption are in no way inferior to those formed through natural procreation. So that's the first thing I'd say that uh, no adoption is not only for people who are infertile, um, for couples who are infertile. Uh, that doesn't mean that that I'd simply say, well, then we should encourage all married couples just routinely to set aside their natural procreative powers in order to adopt children who need a home. Um, uh, as I said before, what we call nature is for Christians creation. Uh, and in the birth of a child, uh, God speaks a kind of yes to the love that husband and wife share, uh, the love with which they give themselves to each other. So we don't want to lose the moral significance of that bodily, biological attachment and the yes, God speaks to it. And the natural family gives us uh, gives us a kind of model for what uh, an adoptive family is. We wouldn't really know what an adoptive family should look like, especially if if we didn't have natural created uh, families as well. So so to say that adoption isn't just for the infertile doesn't mean that uh, every married couple should immediately uh, decide that you're going to become parents only through adoption. Um, and if we just turn to adoption as a kind of uh, replacement for natural procreation, I'm afraid that uh, especially probably in a culture like ours today, we would begin to think of children as uh, chosen by their parents. Uh, uh, and then, of course, the children who are most in need of adop adoption actually would be the ones least likely to be adopted. So one of the really good lessons of natural biological procreation is that we have to learn to love the child who's given us, not the child we might have wanted uh, to choose. Um, so, so I don't. I don't mean to say that adoption is a replacement for ordinary childbirth, but it is a legitimate and uh, equally important way of forming a family. It also teaches us something about uh, our children, namely that they're not our own doing, but a work of God's grace. Um, and so, uh, it's it's an avenue, a route to parenthood that uh, any couple might uh, uh, properly pursue. Something that's the sort of uh, multi. Uh, that's the sort of answer that I think you have to give that take, takes up several tacks on the question. Now, in another question in chapter three here, you ask whose good is chiefly served by adoption: the adoptive parents, the adopted child, or the birth parents? And you go on to answer that question. And in that answer, you quote Pope John Paul II, who said, "To adopt a child is a great work of love." When it is done, much is given, but much is also received. It is a true exchange of gifts. And I know that you have personal experience from this because uh, one of your sons is adopted. And right. in fact, the the interludes between each chapter of this forthcoming book are letters that you wrote to your son. So uh, I'm wondering if you can share a little bit of your personal experience with that. Has that been true for you, that uh, really it is a true exchange of gifts and much is also received when you adopt a child? Oh, uh, yes, absolutely. Um uh, the the really interesting thing to me, I mean, I, I got to be careful that this answer does not become too long. Um, uh, I would say that when we first started doing uh, foster care, it was probably because my wife wanted uh, to do it. I wasn't opposed to it or anything, but I don't think that it would have occurred to me as something uh, that 
we should we should sort of start and take up. Um, and probably if you'd asked me way back then uh, whether I could love an adopted child as much as uh, one of our uh, biological children, I would have said, well, I doubt that, that the biological tie was just too uh, too deep. Um, and what I've learned is that that's just not true. Um, it's it's simply not the case. So uh, so there's a kind of lesson that uh, uh, that one learns over time. And um, I uh, I think that the truth is that we uh, uh, and I think I say this somewhere. In fact, maybe in the preface to the book that that. Um, the adopted child is not really an adopted child uh, any longer. Um, it's just one of your children. Um, these are two different ways of getting children. Um, uh, and that's uh, the lesson that I've learned. Um, it's not, a, as I say, it's not a, I haven't put it in a particular theoretical way, but um, it seems to me to be now almost self-evidently true. I mean, I realize it wasn't at one time, and it might not seem that way to some other people, but it's seems clear to me. No, I actually loved that loved that in the preface of your book when you wrote that it would be wrong to characterize your son as an adopted son. Uh, instead, mm-hmm. you know, you adopted a son, but he's not an adopted son. He's simply your son for adoption is not a status that clings to you forever as you as you write. I really like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. In one of the later chapters, you present the claim that Christians should be strong supporters of adoption, but for the most part, they should not make use of new reproductive technologies or um, artificial reproductive technologies. And as a bioethicist yourself and frequent critic of of reproductive technologies, how do you make sense of that? You said a moment ago that um, having a child through ordinary childbirth and adopting are just two different means of of getting a child, why is is that not the same be, when you're comparing adoption versus um, any sort of artificial reproductive technology? Um, if I said before that these were just two different ways of getting a child, I probably needed to qualify that sentence uh, in some ways. Um, uh, they are two different ways by which one becomes a parent. There's no uh, no doubt about that. But I don't think they're two different ways of just doing the same thing, uh, adopting and assisted reproduction. Adoption is not simply about getting a child. I mean, it is about that. It answers to a, uh, to a desire that uh, parents have, a couple has, to, to rear children, um, and it satisfies that desire. But it's not just about that or even primarily about getting a child. It's about the need of these people to be parents meeting we might say, the need of children for a family uh, to which they can belong. That's a little different from assisted reproduction. In assisted reproduction, we produce the children uh, that we want, um, but children are not produced in order to be available for adoption. Um, uh, they're available for adoption because the people who produce them turn out not to be uh, able to take care of them or maybe not even willing in some cases. Um, so that um, uh, adoptive parents are, we could say, are acting in place, in, in service to and in place of the biological parents who, for whatever reason, are not able to provide for that child a, a family as a place of belonging. They act in service to those parents. They're not trying to procreate in some unusual way. Um, uh, they're not procreating at all, uh, in fact. So, um, uh, so 
Yes, there are two ways in which someone might, um, if we may use the word, acquire a child uh, to, to parent, but um, uh, I don't think they amount to doing uh, the same thing at all. We um, last season talked to Jennifer Lal about surrogacy, and we talked about its moral implications and health risks to women. And you mentioned surrogacy in your book, and you mentioned that some people say that adoption of frozen embryos is a form of surrogacy. Do you do you agree with that? And can you explain that? No, I don't. Uh, the, the very short answer, which I'll uh, try to amplify, is that I don't think it's a form of surrogacy. That doesn't mean I think. Well, let me just uh, let's just start there. I don't think it's a form of uh, surrogacy. Um, it's true that there are people who, who object to embryo adoption on that ground, and it's also true that we have an enormous problem in this country with frozen or more technically cryopreserved uh, embryos. Um, they are in they exist in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, what what are often referred to, though I don't like the language, as spare embryos that were produced for um, in vitro fertilization. Projects, but then turned out not to be needed or used uh, for them, and there they are. They're uh, frozen, and nobody knows what to do with them. Some people, in fact, the most recent estimates are that we may have as many as a million in this country. Um, uh, so that um, we've created a problem uh, for ourselves. We should never uh, have have uh, created the problem. We should stop uh, continuing to exacerbate it. But that doesn't alter the fact that we have uh, these hundreds of thousands of frozen uh, frozen embryos. Now, the people who object to uh, embryo adoption on the ground that the adopting uh, mother is essentially acting as a surrogate, think of her as uh, sort of using her body just as an incubator, which is... Um, uh, you know, if your body is yourself, you don't use it just as a tool. Um, and, I mean, that's understandable, but I I, I, I don't think it applies to um, what people who do embryo adoption have in mind. Uh, surrogacy, at least as we think of it in assisted reproduction context, generally means that the surrogate intends to surrender the child after birth, um, to gestate the child, but then to surrender to uh, somebody, the person or the persons who, uh, as we say, commissioned the uh, the reproductive project. But in the case of embryo adoption, uh, uh, so long as the adopting couple intends to raise the child, uh, to that is to, to make a permanent covenantal commitment to be that child's parents, then the woman is not acting as a surrogate, I don't think, in that uh, sense. Um, uh, she could, of course, do that. I suppose she could incubate an embryo a year and then surrender uh, those children. Then she'd not be anything more than a surrogate, just using her body as an incubator. But I don't think that's what the people who are uh, interested in doing embryo adoption uh, have in mind. So is the difference so, made by the intention of the parents? Is that is that the distinction that we should settle on? Well, the the... The difference has to do with whether one uh, uh, one is, inten is intending to make that permanent commitment to the child, or whether one is just um, uh, gestating the child in order to relinquish it and give it up. So yes, I think there is a uh, a difference in intention there. Um, uh, I'm not prepared, therefore, to say that I, I, I don't myself think that I'm, I'm not prepared to say that embryo adoption is wrong. 
you know, the folks who think of it as a form of surrogacy inclined to say that. Um, that doesn't mean that I would recommend it. Um, uh, I don't. Um, I think I think the situation is much more complex than that. We live in a world in which there are estimated to be um, at least 18 million orphans, children who are already born who lack a family uh, to which to belong. That doesn't even include the number of those whose parents are living but uh, have been abusive, abusive or neglectful. So if somebody's looking for children who need to be adopted and children who will be harmed if they don't find a family to which to belong, I don't think you need to look any farther. Um, and I, I think those children have the greatest claim on us for adoption. The harms that they will suffer if not adopted are far more tangible than the ones that uh, frozen embryos uh, will suffer. So so I don't think embryo adoption is wrong. Um, on the other hand, I don't uh, recommend it uh, either. I think there are lots of other children who, um, uh, who have already suffered harms and will suffer more who should have the first claim for adoption. That leaves us, of course, with the question of what to do with the frozen embryos. I mean, I don't know if that's on your docket or not to uh, to talk about, but um, there really isn't any good answer uh, to that. I mean, in the first place, we should stop producing more, of course, um, and it's possible to do assisted reproduction without producing uh, leftover embryos, though um, for a variety of reasons, lots of people don't want to do it that way. Um, my own actual view on this, though, I don't know if you'd agree with it, um, and as I said, I don't think there's any good answer uh, to it, is that we ought to actually let those embryos die, by which I mean we should thaw them and allow them uh, to die. But we should do it, in my, in my preferred world, we would do that in the context of a kind of religious liturgy, a religious ritual in which we accompany them in their dying and commend them to God's care. Um, uh, the only other possibilities are to keep them frozen, uh, to to use them as research subjects, which I think is uh, is utterly wrong, or to... uh, uh, to let them die, and that's what uh, that's what I would do. Um, uh, there are mysteries there that we can't solve, and some wrongs for which our culture is responsible. Um, but I think that's about the best we can do right now. So, when you said that the children, orphan children who are alive now and without parents, there's more harm that could befall them, and so they have a greater claim on us um, for adoption. That the Allowing a frozen embryo to be thawed and then to die, that wouldn't be, you wouldn't consider that then to be a greater harm that would befall them. <laughs> no. Um, uh, it's, it's obviously not the, uh, uh, the fate that we would desire for uh, any human life that has begun, but um, it just means that uh, they die now rather than um, uh, remain frozen uh, indefinitely. Um, the the children who are already born um, will uh, uh, will suffer all sorts of harms if um, uh, if we don't find families in which they belong. And then very likely they will inflict uh, lots of other harms as well. So that to, it seems to me that they have... Um, uh, they have the clearer uh, claim on us, even though we have created for ourselves a uh, well a no-win situation in which um, uh, there there's literally no good answer to uh, to the problem.
Yeah, no, I I do agree with you, and I appreciate it in your book how you clarified that by making that distinction of the greater claim, you're not saying that either has greater dignity um, or no, is no, less no. human. No, no, no. That I I try in that uh, in that last chapter to be very clear on that. that yeah, um, you definitely are. That um, uh, it's it, every every parent who has more than one child knows that um, uh, equal treatment does not necessarily mean identical treatment, um, and equal respect for those children does not mean that you necessarily uh, treat them uh, the same, and. Um, I think that we, uh, if we just said, if we just said, well, these children who are already born already have some developed capacities, and the embryos don't, so let's get rid of the embryos. That would be, I think, uh, uh, denying that they had equal human dignity. That's not what I want to do. I simply want to say that in this bad situation that we have created for ourselves. Um, uh, the first claim on us is those who are going to suffer uh, more and more harms if uh, if they don't if, if they don't find a family to which to belong. Well, thank you, Dr. Mylander, for coming on our show and answering all of our questions. And we will be pointing our listeners to your forthcoming book. Well, maybe you'll uh, make a, a few bucks in royalties for me. That would be very nice. <laughs> we'll do our best. So our listeners, if you want to check it out, it's uh, Notre Dame Press, Not by Nature, But by Grace, Forming Families Through Adoption by Gilbert Mylander. Dr. Mylander, thank you once again for joining us. Very good. Thank you. All right, we're back with the Vernacular Podcast, and we're here with Nathan and Sadie, who have joined us before in season uh, on one. the show. Yes, in season one. We had a great conversation with them about a lot of things. Go back and check it out. But today, they're here to tell us a pretty harrowing story uh, that they experienced recently. Nathan and Sadie, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you. So if you're an avid listener of Vernacular, you've heard us mention uh, the story that Nathan and Sadie are about to tell. Yeah, uh, back in season three. In a previous tip of the week, but we're not going to tip their hand here. We're just going to let them take it away. Uh, so I'll let you guys do that. All right. So we, I was taking Sadie and Pippa to the airport. Sadie was going to go visit her mom um, for about three weeks with Pippa. Pippa's our, she's two and a half today actually she's two and a half Aww. um yeah <laughs> happy half birthday uh, did you guys do a half cake no we did not. Today, <laughs> was a, today was an early bedtime for that child <laughs> I, I that's realized, a good birthday present birthday so <laughs> yeah. we have we have heard of this kind of kind of cool thing it's kind of cool kind of super cheesy but uh you you almost never finish an entire birthday cake when you celebrate a birthday Right. So what you do is you basically just save the uneaten half mm. for the half birthday. And then, you know, you freeze it for six months. And then six months later, it's like, oh, let's celebrate the half birthday with a half cake. Yeah. So I would never remember that. I would forget yeah. that it was in the freezer. Yeah. The it would just place. take a lot of space in the freezer. And <laughs> so I'd be tempted so. to eat it like after like four weeks. Yeah. Right. That's it's, too. Like, right. it's like ice cream cake when right. it's in the freezer. I don't know if right. it really works yeah. that way, but it sounds like it sounds good. So Interesting. Okay, well, now that I totally yeah. derailed us, Continue let's go on. back. <laughs> uh, so anyway, we were on our way to the airport in rural North Dakota here. It was cheaper to get a flight out of Bismarck, um, which was about two hours away. So we were driving southbound on US 83, um, which is a divided highway. So we were doing about 70 miles an hour. Um, and we were about an hour into the trip and coming to a crossing state highway, um, which crossed the US 83 that we were on. And all I remember 
is this hood of this little sports car, whatever it was, in my peripheral vision as it hit our car. And it hit basically on my door. Um, I was driving. And so police report said he was doing considerable speed, whatever that wow. is. Um, so we we spun and we rolled off the side of the road. Oh, my goodness. Um, the other driver had blown. There was a stop sign on each side of the road. And he had just turned off US 83. So, like, he knows this is a major highway. Um, so he blew those stop signs, hit us. Um, we spun, we rolled. Um, there was happened to be an EMT driving by a bunch of people that were driving by a stop to help out. Was that immediate um, or were you guys like stranded for a few minutes? To me, it was immediate. Um, uh, yeah, it was pretty, I mean, as soon as I had barely unbuckled my seatbelt after we had like stopped, you know, spinning and, and I kind of was like, okay, I need to get out of the car and check on Pippa. Our daughter and had the car had the car landed right side yeah. up after rolling. Yeah, so we rolled wow. a couple times and spun, and then it we spun into a ditch, and then it landed. It landed kind of right side up. Yeah. Um, and so there were people. I mean, I think because there was a stop sign on yeah. the other side, so people had, were stopped, you know, and kind of saw the whole mm. thing. And so okay, people immediately like so many people. Um, there was a there was a fairly major intersection, and it's a weekend and stuff. So yeah. Yeah, so people immediately wow. came and helped and um, helped kind of get me out. And, like, I, they kind of sat me down just because I was a little bit in shock. Yeah. And there's an EMT, Nathan was saying, an EMT um, off-duty. She was just in her car, but she came by and helped. Like, she knew not to get our daughter out of the car seat just in case there were spine or neck injuries. So she was working on trying to, like, undo the latch system. Yeah, uh, to like cut I mean, the car seat. Oh out. yeah, yeah. Just take the whole yeah, she was car seat out. Okay, gotcha. And we had a seatbelt cutter in the car. It was like in our center console thing, where the little cover was latched. But in the accident, all of that stuff just went everywhere. Um, oh, and so yeah. I didn't know where that was, but I had my pocket knife. So I just passed my pocket knife back to the EMT, and she just cut the straps. The so you were you were conscious for this, Nathan? Yeah. He was he was unconscious when we first stopped. And I panicked, and I might have kind of slapped him a little bit. Yeah, that's understandable. Yeah, I and just, then... I just got real emotional. I was like, "Oh my gosh, you need to wake up for this!" Like, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. And I just didn't know. And I saw that probably wasn't the best response, but he <laughs> but, woke up yeah. and was, and was then was. I mean, he was in a ton of pain. Um, so I don't remember anything from seeing that hood of the other car until coming back when we were sitting there upright. I don't remember rolling or anything. <laughs> Oh my but goodness. Sadie remembers all of it, which makes it very hard for her to, to process this now. You know, it's very traumatic for her. Yeah, absolutely. So they got Pip out of the car seat, um, out of the car, still in her car seat. Um, and I was sitting there waiting. Sadie said it was like 45 minutes. Yeah, they someone called the called 911 immediately. Um but I guess because we were so far out of town and the next closest town was still about an hour and a half away, um, it took about 45 minutes for the ambulances to get to us. Yeah. That's so long. Yeah. And so oh my goodness. Well, the ambulances and then the fire truck had to come for me because they needed the jaws to get me out of the car. I was trapped in the car. Oh, wow. my gosh. Yeah. So you were trapped in the car for 45 minutes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In yep. tremendous pain. Yeah. And you still, you still really weren't sure of the status of 
your daughter in the back seat. I knew she was. I mean, she was out of the back seat at that point. Um, was she still in the, like in the car she, seat? Yeah, though? she was still in the car seat. Just because the off-duty EMT said, "Let's keep her in the car seat until we know for sure that." Yeah, yeah. You know, let's not move her or anything. She was. I mean, she was crying and screaming. I could tell that I don't. I don't think you know. I could tell. I was like, I think she's okay. She's talking. She. At one point, kind of looked across the ditch. There's a little pond. She's like, oh, there's ducks over there. And I was like, yeah. like, Aww, that's so cute. Just look at the ducks, baby. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it took about 45 minutes. Yeah. And there was and somebody, somebody that stopped just stood by my door and just kept talking to me, making sure I was okay while we waited for the, for, for the fire truck to come. So that was really helpful, just making sure that I stayed conscious and everything was okay there, you know. So. And what about the other driver? Um, he he is fine. He didn't have any injuries. He was released from the hospital the same day. Yeah, released from the hospital. Oh his goodness. son was in the, his front seat and not buckled and was ejected from the car, but was fine too. It was a release from the hospital, and their car really wasn't. Just the hood was a little damaged. Yeah. Wow. It really wasn't. I mean, their car really wasn't. Uh, nearly nothing like ours. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So considering how bad it was, everyone didn't, I mean, Nathan didn't walk away, yeah. but everyone is alive and, um, you know, the injuries sustained are all ones that will heal. It's a long road, but it could have been a lot, lot worse. Yeah. So, so I know you guys have some opinions on, and I mean, I'm not saying they're, they're just opinions. You have some tips on things that made this safer for your family. Could you share those with us? First of all, buckle up. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if if buckling up is not something that you do as soon as you get in the car, every time, yeah. I there's just no excuse for that. I don't know. I mean. Well, and even when we're on long trips with the baby in the back seat, I am ashamed to say that I have sometimes, like, I will unbuckle and turn around and try to grab food out of the cooler or... You know, I would try, I would quickly like, oh, you dropped your dog, your puppy, let me grab it and I'll get, hand it back to her and I'd sit back down and buckle. Yeah. I mean, I do that yeah, too. Yeah. And just, I was thinking, you know, if in that split second of. Right. That moment when you're not. That buckled. moment. I mean, I don't, if we, if any of us in the car had not been buckled properly, then I don't think we would have survived yeah. just because of how severe it was. And so, yeah, to stay buckled and. You know, now from here on out on road trips, if one of the kids in the back seat needs something, we'll have to pull over and I will get out and get it and or sit back there with, you know, with yeah. the toddler. And yeah, and so that there were a bunch of EMTs and, and the paramedics and stuff that said what saved Pippo was being rear facing in her car seat. I mean, like I said, she's two and a half and she's a fairly large two and a half year old. Yeah, She's about 33 pounds. Yeah. Um, I mean, most tall. people think she's three at least. Um, and her knees are, you know, bent up when she's rear facing, but, um, that's what saved her, probably saved her life. So gosh, that's so amazing. Yeah. yeah I mean, after we heard your guy's story, we, uh, decided to keep Esther rear facing. Yeah. So yeah. Cause she too is a little bit taller right. for her age. Yeah. And it's not comfortable. I mean, yeah. Just... And she is getting to the point where, yeah, she's going to have to kind of crumple up a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, she misses things out the window. Right. It's just not ideal yeah. in any way. But, yeah, we were very compelled by your guys' story, and she's rear-facing. Yeah. 
And we actually had just, I think, a month or two earlier, we had turned her around forward facing because, you know, it's it's legal to do yeah. that. And she's pretty big for her age, like Sally said. So, yeah. you know, she was above the sort of uh, the, the required minimum weight right. for rear facing. So Yeah, and anticipating road trips this summer, we were like, oh, it would be so much more fun. But Yeah, so it, it worked great. I mean, she liked being able to see everything. She liked having leg room. Yeah. She liked being able to see mommy and daddy right in front of her. But, um, yeah, after your guys' story, we just, we talked yeah. about it and... Not worth it. Realized, yeah, it really is not worth it. So yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure it turned her back around. It's difficult now that she's seen what forward facing is like, too. It was at first. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Well, I it, think in, now in the that... very beginning, we sold it as like, wow, Esther, look at your new car seat. <laughs> <laughs> and I think she bought it for like a day or two. Yeah. Uh, and then it, yeah, it is more yeah. difficult now, but... I think she's gotten used to it again, though. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah. She'll thank us later. Yeah. Yeah. What were the other? Um, I think a big thing, I've always been really bad about keeping my car clean. And so we just had so much stuff in the back seat. We had a bunch of stuff to take to a thrift store that had cleaned out of our house. And I mean, we had Sadie's duffel bag for the, for the plane ride. Yeah. And I just had water bottles, like empty water bottles, like, you know, metal, steel, aluminum water bottles. In the backseat, like I'd always been, I'm like, oh, I'll clean it out later. Well, right. in the accident, I mean, stuff just flew everywhere, and it's miraculous that nothing oh, wow. hit Pippa in the head or hit yeah. hit one of us. And so now I realize that's like on long road trips, we're going to get um, one of those roller. Our car has like a cargo area cover things. Oh, yeah. yeah something that's that like rolls idea. over or just kind of like secure down yeah. stuff just because. I remember being upside down and like rolling and just stuff was everywhere. And, you know, anything could hit a kid in the head, you know, a water bottle or something, which, I mean, obviously you have to, we still take water bottles in the car because we can't like, I'm not going to tie those down so we can't use them. But right. But extraneous items. Yeah. It just made me realize that we need to keep. And we, we also, we had an iPad mount that mounted to the headrest. You know, so Pippa was rear-facing, she's facing that headrest. We right. had a mount for the iPad that clipped to that headrest, and the mount itself was secure, but, like, it was just kind of spring-loaded to hold the iPad. And if the iPad had been in there during that accident... Oh. That's a projectile. Yeah, 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 that would have definitely hurt her. And yeah. so oh. we're just making sure to find, you know, if we do mount the iPad again for road trips, we'll make sure to do it in a way... Very, very secure. I will not get the cheap, yeah. the cheap one on walmart.com or wherever I found it, I'll make sure to, you know, we're going to find, just make sure everything's really secure and any extra, extra items that can be secured down or kind of like put under the seat or something to keep those. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what else. I remember we were kind of talking about all of the tips of things that. Yeah. Well, I know this was several months ago. How are you guys feeling now? Um, well, I'm doing all right. Um, I'm actually icing my hip right now. So I guess we just go over our injuries. I fractured my pelvis in several places and also fractured a rib. Um, I think it's probably more, it's, it's more fair to say instead of that you fractured your yeah, pelvis, that he fractured you know, the it, yeah. impact of another car hitting the yeah. pelvis <laughs> at 70 miles an hour. Yeah, fractured. Yeah, your pelvis true. was fractured. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So can you walk easily? Or I, gonna... I mean, just the past two, week and a half, two weeks, I've been able to walk um, not very far. Wow. Short distances slowly, without crutches. Slowly. 
and it hurts. Um, I was on crutches for a while. I mean, I didn't even start walking with crutches for about a week in the hospital. I was in the hospital for 10 days. Um, and then once I got home, like I couldn't even lay down on the couch and have Sadie or somebody lift my leg out of the couch because I couldn't do it myself. Oh my goodness. Um, but now I'm starting to be able to walk, um, a little bit. And hopefully after this next follow-up appointment in two weeks, I'll be able to start some physical therapy. And if our listeners remember, you are not an inactive guy. No. You, we talked in our last episode about your rock climbing and adventure trips and, and helicopter you're a helicopter yeah. pilot. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so the fact that you've been this debilitated by it has does not reflect at all what the kind of active lifestyle no, you had no, beforehand. I haven't even been able to walk the dog. I mean, That's normally in the summer, oh. I would be... I would get home from work and I would take Pippa and our dog for a walk to the park or just a walk or something and, you know, or a run. Or be training for a marathon. Yeah. Or... Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm reading Outside Magazine and listening to climbing podcasts and I'm just going stir crazy here. But Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. But Sadie fractured a sternum. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, fractured sternum and then just some bruised ribs and... um. So that's doing, uh, I try not to lift our toddler too much, which she doesn't really care about. She's not incredibly touchy anyways, so that doesn't bother her. So I just can't do too much lifting. I can't, our house is just kind of in a perpetual state of messiness right now because there's not a whole lot that either of us can do. So guys, uh, I have to ask you how you've sort of processed this over the last six weeks. How are you guys, how are you guys getting through this? Well... We're not quite sure yet. We're still, I think it's a day by day. Yeah, it's a definite day by day thing. And I've had to learn because a lot of like when life is stressful, a lot of what we do to cope is, you know, we'll go out on a date. We'll have time by ourselves. We will go, you know, Nathan will go run. I will go do yoga. We'll go work out. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we told you guys in that when we talked about the miscarriage, but the first chance I got, I went on like a three or four hour trail run with the dog. Yeah. When oh, I heard yeah. That news. I think you did say that. So, yes. You know, yes. Like, so kind of our coping, all of our things. And then, you know, we'll often be like, you know what, let's just go take a family trip. We'll just go somewhere, kind of rejuvenate. And so all of our kind of our normal ways to cope with when life gets stressful, we can't do. And so right. that's been, I've had to learn how to um, find contentment in the town we're in, which is kind of hard sometimes. Um, and just find, seek out like, okay, I'm going to go find something to do today with Pippa. We're going to find like, we're going to find something to kind of occupy ourselves. We're going to find the fun things like the joy here since we can't go anywhere else at the moment. And so that's been just trying to learn like, okay, we're kind of stuck at home right now and we're going to figure out, you know, we'll, We've started playing bingo with Pippa. That's like her favorite thing right now. She oh, calls it mango. Great. Calls it mango. <laughs> that's so and cute. And so we're learning like little ways to, that I don't think we would have bonded or that we would have found to do as a family. Um, yeah, it's really forced you to be more creative yeah, and so, with what you have in your immediate space. Yeah, and just. And I think I mentioned like our Bible study group. We've had a ton of support from um, the small group that we led and then other Bible study groups that we're a part of here. Um, that's wonderful. I mean, people just bringing us meals and meals and gift cards. And I think a couple of the girls just rated 
the grocery store on like the day of the accident and bought every gluten-free treat they could find for Sadie. Aww. Yeah. I mean, if That's it had so gluten-free sweet. on the label, they brought it over. <laughs> they bought it. <laughs> Prayer for me has been one way to cope. It's, it's, tough because I don't normally pray a lot and that's something that I'm working on um especially with Sadie it's it's hard to work it into our routine because of our toddler I mean it's hard to find time like you know after Pippa goes to bed or before she gets up for just the two of us to sit and pray or do anything um but I've been trying to do more of that and then I we talked about um, with the miscarriage, I read C.S. Lewis's The the Problem of Pain. Um, and just having that kind of in the back of my mind and having that background of understanding. Because so many people have said, oh, God was watching watching out for you, that you weren't more hurt or that you didn't die. You know, like, obviously God was watching out for you. And my first reaction to that is just, well, if God was watching out for us, why did it happen in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really reasonable question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so I think CS Lewis does a great job of answering that question. And the answer is fairly long and complicated, but the short version is that you cannot have two independent beings that are self-aware in a universe where everything goes right for both of them. Um, so if somebody wants to run a stop sign, that person runs a stop sign and they're going to hurt somebody else, you know? So if everything's going right for the one guy, it's, it's got to go wrong for something, somebody else. Um, yeah. So that's kind of the short version of CS Lewis's argument and the problem of pain that the, the nature of the universe dictates that bad things are going to happen. So, yeah, we Which have got free will and our free will is going to clash with other people's free yeah. will. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Which is oddly consoling. And after such an accident that not that more bad things are going to happen in our life, but just the thought that, you know, like you're saying, it's impossible to avoid in a world of free will where every being has free will. Yeah. And yeah, it's just, that has been something I haven't read that book yet. And my husband keeps telling me I need to, (laughs) um, and I had to do a lot of mental processing about everything first before I get to the point where I can actually sit down and read a book about. That's a tough one to read about too. that I issue. Mean, I had yeah. to sit down every couple of pages and like write an outline of notes just so I could follow the argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe I'll just read your notes. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> the, the cliff, cliff notes, notes version of the yeah. pain. Yeah. But I've been doing a lot of reading. Yeah. I'm sure you've had a lot of time too. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of reading. So that's one of my coping mechanisms. I'm reading a book about rust right now that Sadie got me. Um, it's just a book all about rust. rust. Like the oxidation process. Yep. Yes. The wow. oxidation of iron. Yeah. I think corrosion. it's the most boring subject <laughs> I have ever heard, but he wanted that book. So that's, that's what he got for father's day. Yeah. One uh, of the chapters was all about the creation of stainless steel and wow. And, yeah. Pretty, I like it. Nathan, have you read, um, Ant Hill? I think it's Ant Hill by EO mm-hmm. Wilson. No, I haven't. Is this sounding familiar at all? Have you heard of this? No, it's not. Okay, um, I will double check on the name of the book for you. Yeah, but it's about ants, which oh. sound which sounds like it might be a boring book, but yeah, as you may or may not know, ants are one of the most fascinating creatures in yeah. the world. Yeah, and he has written this amazing sort of Pulitzer-worthy book on wow. ants and wow. the ant uh, species. 
So maybe that can I'll follow up here. Rust. Yeah, so Ant Hill, a novel. I just double checked it. Oh, a okay. novel. That's right. interesting. Edward O. Wilson. It won oh. the Chicago Tribune's Heartland Prize for fiction. Hmm. Interesting. So oh. it is a well, fiction. Well, if you like a book about, about Rust, you will like a book about Ant. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of books. Yeah, this is a good segue. Yeah. Because we wanted to ask you about a book that you had mentioned to us in one of mm. your emails um, that you had read, and it relates to a conversation we've had on the podcast. Well, really, a several conversation we've had several times, yeah. Yeah, or <laughs> several conversations, how we look at it. Yeah, so a lot of we've, our listeners will remember that we've talked about Anne-Marie Slaughter's article, um, women, Why Women Can't Have It All, I think is the title. And you recently read Unfinished Business, which we yeah. mentioned, I think, before it even came out when we talked to one of our contributors um, in season two or three but we just wanted to kind of get your your take on that before we let you guys go. And, and yeah, just like what you thought of it. And we neither of us have read it. But um, but yeah, we, you're such a, a good reader and a careful reader. So we'd love your little <laughs> review of Thanks. it. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll start off by saying that I am fairly conservative. Um, and our family roles, our gender roles in our marriage are very conservative. Um, I mean, I'm the breadwinner, Sadie's a stay-at-home mom, which is an extremely difficult job. Um, and I know that's what you do too, Sally. So yeah, it's, it's tough. Not really. Um, That's what I say every time this comes up. My job is so much easier than Sally's. (laughs) And, And that's really one of Slaughter's main points is that we don't value care, um, enough in our society. We don't value people who take care of their kids or take care of other people's other people's kids or take care of their parents. Um, it's just not something that we value enough to let people leave the workplace and come back. Um, and that's, I think the, the often quoted fact that women earn 77 cents on the dollar is it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Um, but there is a wage gap between, you know, women after they have kids Um, and there's even a wage gap between women after they have kids and women who haven't had kids, um, because those women have to leave the workplace to care for their children right? and then come back. And when they do come back, they're often working less hours, more flexible hours. Um, and that isn't valued as much as people that, you know, are the first one into the office and the last one out, even if they're not doing as much work. Um, and so, and one of Slaughter's other main points is I think she, I think she said, or she kind of implied that she kind of regrets the title of that article, women can't have it all, um, because nobody can have it all. Um, I mean, if you think about she, that she goes back to kind of rephrase that because we recently talked about that article and that's kind of what we were saying was that, well, men can't have it all either. Right. No, No. you know, the the super duper CEO, uh, male, male CEO of a company, he's committed his whole life to that career probably and sacrificed family time along the way, you know, exactly. and he's only yep. been able to do that because he's got someone who stays at home to care for his children. Right. So, yeah. You know, what would have been great is if she said why we can't have it all, because then it would be ambiguous. Like, is she saying we as a woman or we as a member of the human race? Yeah. Or we yeah. as in, like, her if she, had, if she had consulted me on this question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or maybe the Atlantic just needed to. Yeah, they just need a better copy. (laughs) She she did say that that title probably sold more more magazines. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. She also expanded in the book on her decision to leave 
her, she was pretty high level in the state department. Um, yeah. She was the director of policy planning. Yeah. So she talks about her decision to leave that job and return to Princeton where she was the Dean, um, and where her husband was a professor also, um, because that's where their children were. So, and their boys at that time were teenagers, um, and starting to, you know, do things that teenagers do and having a two hour commute and not being able to just drop everything and get home to help take care of her boys. This is a um, little bit of an aside, but I mean, what an amazing woman where she steps down. Yeah. Get, I mean, I'm not even sure if this is a step down you know, from director of policy planning back to her position as a dean at right, Princeton. Right. Like, yeah. What? Steps aside. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. So it was, it was interesting hearing her perspective and her almost defense of herself um, from feminists who uh, kind of accused her of not going all out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that accused her of not doing the feminist thing and then, you know, going and maintaining her career. Um, cause she probably could have gotten to even higher levels in the state department and the government. So, yeah. yeah I mean, I find the title of her book provocative. I, I haven't read it and I, I generally hesitate to join the conversation about, uh, books, you know, whose titles I've only read and not the actual books, but yeah, it seems like she's saying there's, you know, more work to do so that we can have a world where everyone can have it all. Is that what she's saying? Or is she, yeah, is she yeah, really that's... saying that actually this is just sort of a problem of a capitalist society and we're just in this perpetual system where we're never going to be able to have it all because on the one hand, there's the pursuit of mammon essentially. On the other hand, there's this pursuit of caregiving and family and relations. Yeah, she does. I don't think she would say that we can ever have it all, but I think she would say that there is important changes that we can make towards yeah. a better society. That's fair. Um, where the goal isn't to have it all. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I sort of, that's, that's, that's step one is framing the question. Yeah. Reframing it. Yeah. yeah that's a really yeah. good point. Yeah. So would you recommend always, the book to yeah. our listeners? Yeah, I would. Even, even as I said, as a conservative and she is self-admitted, very liberal. I, it was a, uh, it was a very interesting book and, um, yeah, I would, I would recommend it. Great. Well, we'll check it out to our yeah, listeners. Yeah. Check out so Anne-Marie Slaughter's unfinished business. Well, thanks Nathan and Zadie for coming on the show to share about your car accident and car safety tips. That was really helpful and enlightening. We, uh, will be praying for you as you continue to make a full recovery and we hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks guys. another episode of vernacular podcast and before we do that we just wanted to remind you to rate and review us on itunes yes or if you liked or didn't like something that you heard today please let us know you can do that in one of several ways you can first email us zach and sally at vernacularpodcast.com you can tweet at us at vernacular pod you can also find us on facebook at facebook.com slash vernacular podcast or you can just head to our website or blog at vernacularpodcast.com and leave a comment there and let us know what you think and if you'd like to be on a future lightning round, then you should also let us know. Yeah, you can get in touch with us through any of the aforementioned ways. Yeah, we'll just call your phone and give you your very own lightning round. It'll be perfect. And it can be personalized, too, if you give us more details, like where you live, what kind of stuff you like to do. We can give you a personalized, tailored lightning round. Yes. <laughs> 
All right, and I think that wraps it up. I, I think so. It's been a long episode of the day, so we will keep this end of it short, 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 short and sweet. <laughs> but for Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. Bye.